0: Welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part four of the Fountain of Youth series. Last time we were talking about vampires a little bit. Today we're going to talk about goats and donkey jaw bones. So let's get started. Perhaps you've noticed in his earthly life, Jesus did not live to be 100 years old. He didn't even live to be 50 years old. He lived to the age of 33 or thereabouts. And 33 is a nice, medium, mature age. Um, it's symmetrical, the numbers. It looks nice. And he chose to die at that age. At the age of 30, he began this journey toward the cross when he starts his ministry. And I'm I'm about to go off the orthodox trail here, uh, but I feel like there's a signal to us, uh, like a message, like a ping calling from the silence of his years between when he was found in the temple at age 12 and his public baptism around the age of 30. There's like this 18-year whole. The fact that Jesus began his ministry at 30 is curious because he talks often about spiritual rebirth. Um, He talks about returning to the faith of a child. And after the infancy narratives of Jesus are completed, the only glimpse we see of of him is when he is in the temple in Jerusalem among the elders. And this is one of my favorite parts of all the Gospels, 12-year-old Jesus, where the line is, this is Luke chapter 2, where it says, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. He was 12 years old at the time, so to read this in 21st century, uh, 21st century American terms, he would have been a middle schooler. Um, as many parents know and many of us may remember, middle school is roughly when the age of reason begins not to mention puberty. So this is the age of change of like you're kind of entering adulthood a little bit kind of in between, um, a litany of questions and doubts enters the minds of a middle schooler. There's just no question about it. It's when kids change some really go off the rails and they come back a little later. It's just a time that's difficult. Uh, middle, anyone who's been in middle school remembers that and probably never wants to go back to it. Maybe some people do, but I don't know many around age 12 the tooth fairy and Santa Claus and the Easter bunny are all deceased. They're all done. It's over with the, I mean, there's probably a few that still believe. And of course that's great. Um, but these myths about the tooth fairy and and Santa Claus begin to be seen as these scandalous lies used as like a carrot on a stick to lure kids into good behavior and do you know what else can easily become a suspected fraud when a child attends the funeral of peter cottontail yes the answer is god it's god so once you've seen through some other mythology you you kind of think wow well what if this other thing i've been being told about that's above these things is also a fraud well the age of reason is when we enter into this greater understanding of the world around us and we begin to grow toward adulthood and which means this is when we start asking questions and I put asking questions in quotes because it literally says that in the book of Luke, that Jesus is in the temple, um, not only inter- interacting, listening to them, but he's asking them questions. And I, I just think that's like, I don't know, it's so interesting to me that he's asking questions and those two words are put into that phrase because this is the incarnation of god but he as i say he's always showing us how to live so he's asking questions he's listening and learning from the elders um and then speaking and he's they realize he's super wise of course so for the church the age of reason that quote i keep i keep saying those three words is when we are said to be morally responsible for our actions since we can no longer play the ignorance card regarding knowing what is right and wrong and interestingly there's a book called the age of reason Also, um, the name of the book, and it's an attack on Christian doctrine and the idea of miracles written by one of America's founding fathers, Thomas Paine, who argued for a kind of deism, not quite atheism, but um, what Thomas Paine questioned in his book called The Age of Reason is many of the same topics that any middle schooler with a curious mind will come across as the mind and body and soul go searching together for meaning in this world and they come across difficult passages, of course, in um, both the Old Testament and New Testament. So what Thomas Paine uh, wrote, he, he didn't come up with anything new. He just articulated the doubts about miracles and his discomfort with difficult sayings in the Bible. And he wrote this book when he was in his 50s. So he didn't write it when he was a, a young man. I mean, he was not that old, I guess, but um, he wrote it when he was older. Uh, meaning he could organize his doubts much better than a 12-year-old because in a 12-year-old, they're just clashing about and um, there's so much going on. You're getting school information and uh, faith information and doubt information and um, <laughs> you're just turning into... Um, you're having these changes happening all over the place. So, But Thomas Paine had spent a life of rebellion gaining fame in America for his pamphlets titled Common Sense. So he wrote... Um, you know, around the revolution. He wrote these pamphlets. uh, He was really famous and he called for revolution. You know, he was calling for revolution. And then after that, after the the American revolution, he went revolution shopping in France and thought it might be nice if they too overthrew the government and and all church involvement in society was just chucked out. So um, he was kind of like a a rebel's rebel, you know, like Thomas Paine was a great writer, great thinker, obviously very smart and articulate. And, um, but he didn't just help with one revolution. He helped with two, not that he was like the, the reason that happened in France or something, but he definitely had a huge impact in the United States. So from his own words, um, he said that churches and religions, and this is the quote, appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. So he's got like the middle school mood really nailed down or the high schooler who's like, you know, this is all a bunch of BS and it was all made up just to make us uh, act and behave a certain way. And I think many, many people have that notion. So um, he, this is pretty bold to write something like this back then. Um, nowadays, you find it anywhere on the Internet. So it's not even bold anymore. It's like it's like the most um, trite type of uh, thought. Now it's everyone's thinking that or a lot of people think and they just say it. Because it's there's more um, ability to just get your thoughts out there, like basically I'm doing on a blog or podcast. Um, furthermore, uh, Thomas Paine, so he he hated the Bible and even called it demonic. So he said in this is a quote: Whenever we read the obscene stories and the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we call it the word of a demon than the word of God. It is a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind. And for my part, I sincerely detest it, as I detest everything that is cruel, he says. Um, Which is interesting, because the French Revolution was one of the most cruel uh, (laughs) times of history ever. So, but anyway, um, so what, what Thomas Paine says here, though, is a perfect definition of the twofold set of doubts that those coming into the age of reason and adulthood will be tempted by and want to investigate. First, the imposition of authority irritates us. It just irritates us, especially when the rules seem arbitrary or we can't see any reason behind them. And as teenagers grow and learn, they see adults that certainly do not live up to the rules they're setting forth, as hypocrites are everywhere in all spheres, whether that's in work life, church life, family life, Everywhere. It's just um, you're going to have people setting rules and not following the rules. It's like when people see a police car take a left turn and they don't signal or um, someone is telling you you have to walk in the hallway when they're running. You know, it's just these things are everywhere, everywhere. So the idea that authority is invented solely for purposes of control becomes an easy leap to make. And if the models for authority are bad ones or you have been repeatedly told are bad models then the association of authority as an evil oppressor is enticing because it turns the doubter it turns the one who's coming of age into a victim and really like a freedom fighter so in the i I totally felt that like i was i was seeing through i was in i was if i was in plato's cave um i was down watching the shadows dance and and finally i realized that these are just shadows someone's making these shadows they're lies they're not real this isn't reality i'm gonna go up to the next level of the cave and oh look at all the fools down there and you know this is kind of why the, the allegory of the cave is so uh memorable and powerful it's like this age of reason coming of age where you you come out of one level of ignorance and move up to the next level and then you think that's the the right level and eventually of course you find that that level is also not the right one that's that's anyway um, so in these years of doubt and questioning that urge rises in all of us um, like a stepson who wants to scream at his stepfather you're not my dad like um, we don't want to be controlled and that's where we start to feel that like a sense of power um, or sense of like agency whatever you want to call it and then when it comes to any institution or any person that holds authority over us that constrains our behavior or thought it, we start to like squirm against it it doesn't you know we want to get out from under that so that's the first one the first like um, doubt uh, mechanism that, that just happens naturally. The second onslaught of doubt comes from exactly uh, what Thomas Paine is talking about, the same Old Testament, that um, he's when he says half of the Bible is full of all these awful things, we should get rid of it. Um, that's exactly what Marcion said, who this was one of the first big arguments in the formation of the church way back when, when uh, Marcion was this person. They, he hated the Old Testament wanted to get rid of it. I talked about it in another episode, I think. Um, so the thing the thing about the Old Testament is that when every child first reads the happy stories of the Old Testament, they're kind of painted that way. So children's Bibles go from creation, and it's like, wow, wow, creation, to Adam and Eve and the cute serpent. And it's like, huh, they're naked, lol. You know, we're seeing these people, they're eating an apple of some kind or a fruit, whatever. And then we go to Noah's saving ark and there's like these happy animals, look at them all two by two going into the ark. And then we kind of move on to David killing Goliath and we're like, yeah, the underdog go, you know, underdog wins and everybody loves that. It's like the NCAA tournament where Loyola beats um, whoever was the number one seed, I don't know, or two seed. Um, and that's about it. Like, you know, we, we get these stories as a child, these really kind of simple stories and that's the summary of, like, 46 books of the Old Testament. is just these, these cardboard flip pages, and children's book. And I think both parents and children are ready to move right on over to the New Testament then, um, to the non-judgmental, loving God manifested in the person of Jesus. And it's like this, um, the, the, the loving dude teacher. And we just kind of, okay, good, we're done with the Old Testament. Just put it over here and never look at that again unless we're at church and they're doing a reading where someone can explain it to us. But, so the child has faith in these primary stories about Adam and Noah and David. Children believe them. This is the faith of a child that Jesus talks about returning to, where there is wonder and willingness to believe. Like, a kid just believes it. It's, it's, this, it's this great thing. And parents and children can have amazing discussions and talk through life lessons solely from those top 10 greatest hits of the Old Testament, even in cartoon form, like uh, almost like nursery story kind of form and through these highlights of the Old Testament. So that's why, yes, they do only cover um, these 10 and it's it's kind of um, it's dumbed down. Let's you know, it just is that's you can't you're not going to dive into this stuff too deep with little kids. But um, and of course, if you're once you're in the turned away, you call this indoctrination. You feel like you're this is how we indoctrinate children well kids are going to be indoctrinated to something whether you like it or not one way or another so um i always think that's funny when people say well i uh, these people are indoctrinated and it's like no we're all indoctrinated to something it's just a matter of what do you want to be indoctrinated into so um okay so kids learn these stories because they aren't yet ready to tackle confusing lines and i'm gonna take one of these lines from Exodus chapter 23. So, um, it says, (laughs) this is a really great line because it says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And some translations say, young kid. And kid, I mean, you probably wouldn't even want to read that to a kid because it sounds like they're going to boil him in (laughs) his mother's milk. So, if a child hears that line, this may bring up some concern about, you know, what's for dinner? but." they're not, they're not going to care or even pretend to understand it, even if you tried to explain it. And the fact that this line about boiling a goat in its mother's milk, it has, you're never going to get to this uh, with your kid, where, but it has to do more with protecting Israelite identity so that they avoid becoming like neighboring tribes. And in this particular case, the Canaanites, who did boil goats in its mother's milk as part of a magic fertility rite, Um, But this would not even enter the the child's developing brain as something that makes any sense. Um, And actually, it's not the child that will be able to understand it. Um, It's the problem is that we adults don't know what's going on with that line. We don't understand it because we have no idea the historical context of it or what it means. Um, We can't make sense of it. So we just dumb it down and shove it back to the bookshelf. So few adults can interpret or explain a a backstory on a line like that. And that line is just kind of hanging in there. It's just stuck in there. It raises questions, a lot of questions. Um, Let me just consider a few of those questions that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay, just bear with me. So if I heard that line and I didn't know anything about the neighboring tribes or anything, I would say, why would anyone boil a goat in the first place? And who boils a goat at all? I mean, this is this is America. I grew up in America. Beef won long ago. We just don't eat goat. So, let me go back further. Why a goat? You know, and who boils meat? I mean, boiling hot dogs and bratwurst makes sense, but no one would boil a steak unless they were mentally ill, and they certainly wouldn't admit it. And I thought, have have they considered a grill or a smoker? The taste would be far better. For this goat i would imagine but maybe not i don't know where is and where is this strange culinary event even taking place it, it sounds like something that would happen in france and why would you boil milk i don't know i don't boil milk uh, boil water and what's with the goat being young does it need to be goat it seems kind of cruel and i could see PETA being all over this the uh, people for the ethical treatment of animals if you're boiling goats um, especially in mother's milk is the mother watching i don't know um, what, and here's a question. Was the goat alive when it was thrown into the pot? Um, is the goat boiled with hair on it? Are the hooves still on or do those get like lopped off? Um, and if so, what happens to the hooves? If it's alive, does the goat bleat while it's being, while it's boiling? I imagine that would make a really sad sound. It's like, it's like a, it sounds like a child crying or something. I mean, at least you can't hear a lobster when it boil, when it dies in the water. So there's no bleating from a lobster. Um, so that's just some of the questions that I, I came up with, thinking of it like a like a kid, even like an adult who doesn't get that line because everyone's just going to move on from that line about boiling goats. And so then, so that's that's the just my list of questions. Now, the second thing is, there's the context of where the line appears in the book of Exodus. I mean, the chapter is talking about like parties, festivals, harvest parties, and right before that it's talking about bringing in the first fruits from the fields and pastures to honor God. So that's all fine and dandy. That makes total sense. It's like, yeah, bring in an offering to honor God. Got it. Uh, Bring in like 10% of your uh, wheat or your whatever, your your flock. Um, You're going to have a big festival. But then it jumps right into a line about boiling goats. And this line actually feels like some addendum or amendment to me to address like a one-time event that happened. And I think of the version of the curse of the goat on the Chicago Cubs, where some man showed up with his pet goat and he said, um, they wouldn't let him in. And he said, uh, well, them Cubs, they ain't going to win no more. And I, I, don't know how he would have said it, but I like thinking of it as a, like a crooked old man with his goat. Um, kind of like the old lady in the grocery store in my bananas story where she says, I hope you age with those bananas. It's like them cubs, they ain't gonna win no more, which caused the cubs, um, according to legend, to suck for decades. And of course, whenever they would screw up and Moises Alou would try to catch a fall ball and Steve Bartman would knock it out of his glove, they would say, well, that's the curse of the goat. Um, but in and so instead of the man showing up with his pet goat and saying a curse, in, in the Israelites case, someone showed up and boiled a goat in his mother's milk and he said, Well, that Israel, they, they ain't going to be chosen no more, something like that. So that's what it feels like. It's just stuck in there. It's like something crazy happened. So they had to go and add this line. It's like, Oh, yeah, that, remember that guy that showed up with the goat and he boiled it? And yeah, that wasn't good at all. We got to put a line in there about that. Because, well, I, no, it's not about that. So I know I've just talked for two minutes about it, but. Um, So, what I do wonder though is how would the average parent talk about this boiling goat verse with a child? How would you even venture into that? I mean, parents just want children to go to bed, not partake in biblical interpretation by nightlight. The load of laundry, the permission slip for the school field trip, the dental bill, the property tax, the summer vacation plan, tomorrow's meetings, and the need for their own personal hygiene. All of those questions and issues outrank the problem. That whatever this goat represented to the Israelites and the sacred writer of Exodus um, saw in this. So we can't just go into the details, so we stick to those easy things, the big things like um, you know, the Israelites escaping Egypt. like that, okay, yeah, that get that, but um, we don't get into the details of the goat. So um, the the idea of the Israelites escaping Egypt is clearly that they're um, becoming a nation and we see that as, it's, it's a little easier to see how that fits into like salvation history and, and what's the religious story happening there. So there's, that's the reason why the main stories are simple ones. And it has to do with the same reason that fairy tales and fables are short and sweet with lots of imagery. It's so we can remember them. Um, uh, we can, we can tell them without needing a book. You, I mean, it was all, this is oral tradition, a lot of this, uh, in, in these old stories. And while the details and the layers of these stories really go far deeper into places that a parent and child cannot easily venture into, but over the course of a lifetime, we actually will encounter versions of these stories and, and, and events in our very real world and experiences. So I'll get to that later because I first have to deal with this boiling goat yet. I, so I haven't even got to the, we have to talk more about this line because um, the confusing lines like this are actually really important. However, um, every line has a purpose in the Bible. It's there, for the, So for the record, now that I've expanded on this long enough that the goat could have probably finished boiling, I've been talking so long. Um, but what is the purpose of this line about boiling goats? What is the actual reason it's there? The reason Israel does not boil goats in its mother's milk is, is actually pretty simple. Um, it's the same reason the Amish don't use, uh, phones and cars. Um, it's, it's a, the fertility rite of the Canaanites goes against their worship of the one God. It's against their community. It, it, so this line bizarre as it is, it directly supports the 10 commandments that Moses received just a few chapters earlier in Exodus. And the interjection about the goat is, is about the first commandment or commandments that you shall have no gods before me. This prohibition of boiling is literally called out because these are the types of rules that keep God's chosen people set apart from the pagans. It's, it's a, Israel worships one God, the one God, not the Canaanite or Egyptian or Persian, plural gods. So, not only do they outlaw boiling a, a goat in its mother's milk, But this line is really should be read as outlawing any pagan ritual or magic or sorcery altogether. So there's a very specific thing about the goat because that, you know, some dude showed up and or no, I'm just kidding. The Canaanite, they see the Canaanites doing this. Um, It's also it kind of it goes back to um, when when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, he was told to, you know, kill his son. And that was um, like child sacrifice was something the neighboring peoples did. And the Israelites were very set apart because they did not do that. And the, the moment of where, um, where Abraham is, stops his arm, you know, when the angel stops his arm and he doesn't do it is a major moment in the cultural definition of, of, uh, of, uh, the Israelite people because they're not doing what the neighboring tribes are. They're set apart. So, um, but no child or middle schooler will, will likely dig into the underlying meaning of strange verses like this. You just won't, uh, most adults will never even consider looking unless they enjoy it. Like, like I do. Um, cause I'm strange, I guess, or there's a lot of people like me obviously over the last m- millennia, but it takes too long. Um, the information is hard to find and there's a game on TV or fingernails to polish or, you know, Scrabble to play something. Nobody does that anymore. It's all on the computer. So, but there's just not enough time or, or will to look into it. So what we want is like, isn't there a fountain of youth we could drink from? Um, we don't have enough time or energy to do this. Um, can, is there like a fountain of youth somewhere? Um, I guess you could take like a pre-workout energy shake and then you'd have tons of energy and just barrel into it. But anyway, um, we lack the time and energy. So we, we abandoned the strangeness of this cultural quirkiness. And, um, uh, after all the goat was boiled some three to 5,000 years ago, if not before that, like that ritual of the, the peoples near them. Um, so we feel like this goat thing has no relevance to us today and the children's Bibles with just these light stories present a kind of God that Disney could have come up with. Uh, in fact, the cartoon Bibles of today I think are like a result of desperate Christians attempting to hold back the flood of Disney's secular religion as it evangelizes the world and steamrolls like actual cultures and traditions, uh, much like the M- Roman empire and the Spanish conquistadors did, but without the sword, it's like this soft power kind of invading your cultures. And you can see that as you go to different places in America, where there were, there used to be more unique cultures. I mean, especially Europe, everything was so unique. Um, and it's just kind of becoming homogenized like you go to um you go to starbucks and mcdonald's and um the all these chain restaurants like jimmy john's there's not like hey go down to this one place and eat this food it's this guy he's lived here for 40 years and he makes these good sandwiches you don't have that anymore uh, or not so much unless you're in like new york or something or chicago uh where there's there is those old businesses but i'm assuming i would guess they're even starting to fade there because we're getting Franchised corporatized everything's becoming just the same and all the money's kind of rolling up. So there, there's no question like um, the you want to if you want to protect your culture, you have to take steps to do that and that means sacrificing things so um, in fact if Exodus were written right now, I suspect it would have lines like um, don't spend a lot of time with your smart smartphone like or don't worship your smartphone um, because it pulls you away from the one true God. It's like these things are about the commandments, not the the specific. Um, or it might say, get rid of your Disney movies. Like they might want not want that cultural encroachment onto them because it's it's teaching something that goes against like the Ten Commandments or the, you know that's that's there's just ways to say that about protecting your culture, and it, it also goes to traditionalists versus like, people who are trying to um, change with the culture. And of course, the whole point of a lot of this stuff for the Israelites is to not change with the culture. You do not go with the culture. You go against it. You want to be set apart from it. You don't want to be uh, bending in the wind like a reed every time the culture changes because it does change every 10, 20, 40, 50, 100 years. Powers change. But what you do not want to give up is your own identity as a culture, and especially this is important for salvation history toward Jesus. So uh, anyway, I don't want to go down that too far, but the point of uh, the specific ritual is not so much the goat. It's about any ritual, magic, sorcery, otherwise uh, that tears apart the fabric of the Israelite community and pulls it away from the one God. So anything that diverts focus from the one true God is prohibited. Therefore using magic to try to conjure up fertility, would not be allowed because that's a rite of magic of a different group of people. So that's the first set of questions the budding doubter has to deal with. Um, but the main hangup about the old Testament, I wouldn't even say is the cultural quirks like that. It's the violence. And by hangup, I mean, what we do is just disconnect the call. We just put the phone down, click Bye. we're done the old Testament, forget it. Uh, we got our our happy stories of ant animals going two by two on the boat and um, you know, a dove bringing back an olive branch, and oh, look, we're saved, so. Um, but after we pass through the dumbed-down gauntlet of these tickly feathers in our modern children's Bible, we, we, if we ever do come back, we're in for shock if we go searching in the actual text. If we ever go to the actual words, and most of us won't, especially Catholics, except for the readings in church, um, which, you know, you will read the whole, almost the whole Old Testament, if you do the daily readings for three years, there's three cycles, um, so you will get most of it, but most people don't do the daily readings, of course. Um, but if you go back to the actual test, text, you'll find the snake in the Garden of Eden, but he won't be so cute. Um, you'll find the animal rescue story of Noah's no-kill shelter arc. Um, it becomes, but it becomes something much darker happening of why it's happening. And then the peaceful and loving Jesus, who passes from this world to the next, requires um, it's not just this like glorious resurrection, you know, and, and all this healing. There's massive pain and suffering and persecution to fulfill the new covenant. So if you go and look closely, you're going to see that. The reaction for the light reader is to like retreat and ignore the Old Testament because of all the bloodshed and violence. And this might be a wise move to re- preserve your faith if it's uh, not if you can't handle that. But you know you want your faith. You know you believe it. Um, because many non-believers dive into these horrors, and they and they do read deeply. In fact, that's where a lot of people, uh, especially like high schoolers and others who are seeking that, they'll go read it. Um, but they'll read it like without notes. So you like same thing with the the goat thing. You wouldn't know why. What is, doesn't make any sense. So you just leave it. You know, it's like I, I got better things to do. Um, so, but when people do go into those horror into the violence and they read it, they Determine that they they can't resolve the loving God idea with this violence and suffering Um, The top objection to God is is the existence of suffering in this world I mean obviously since this seems so converse to any argument against a loving God creator so um, And there's I'll talk about read the problem of pain by C.S. Lewis. Um, There's a great book there on that Um, but anyway if you not diving into the pit and studying the Old Testament is sometimes like a shield for people who put their complete trust in God. Um, They know the truth and they have fully turned to God and nothing you can say or tell or show them will disrupt that trust in God. And I know that sounds crazy because it it may seem like an ostrich putting its head in the sand, but there is a reason for people who have been reborn of of why they do this. Um, Why would someone appear to choose ignorance? It's because they have received the gift of faith and will automatically tune out any reading of the Bible that does not enrich that faith or trust. Um, They will reject any reading that does not celebrate the encounter with God that the word represents to them. And many atheists have more biblical knowledge, like factual knowledge, than believers because they dig in and look closely and they have more education in many cases and they consider themselves truth seekers. I mean, and that's good. They are truth seekers. They're reading deeply, and they believe that's the only way to read. They're trying to read it objectively and look for the truth, which is, uh, that's why a lot of atheists are, um, they're just better versed on Bible stories in, in many ways. And I, I totally get that because I was there with them. So formerly, in my own days uh, of disbelief, I was fully on the side of calling out these ostriches in the sand, like heads in the sand all over the place. And you, I'd think to myself, how can anyone not inspect the Bible and see the problems within it? I mean, even when I wanted to give a reading the benefit of the doubt, uh, it was it was too glaringly like ignorant and foolish to believe. And after a few of those experiences, I stopped reading the actual book at all. And then I went and looked for other authors like Thomas Paine with The Age of Reason, Or I wanted, I found the writings from the Jesus Seminar where they were, they were trying to do this completely historical uh, reading of what was true and what was not, Um, or say like John Dominic Crossan. They were, these were authors who would confirm my suspicions So I'd read, I'd go to the bookstore library and, and I'd research and, oh, here's a, here's an author that um, is digging in like I am doing, and he's looking for the truth and here he's found it. And he's pulled it out and it's like wriggling in his hand like this lizard. Look here. Here's the here's the truth. You know, Um, I recently spoke with someone whose faith was waning. And um, it was interesting because he told me he wanted to go and find books that would cut through the like apologetics. um, Apologetics just means defense of the faith or um, sort of the um, the spin that like um, either the Catholic Church or Protestants or whatever would put on it. So he wanted to find the historical analysis. And books that delved uh, into the like the likelihood of the gospel realities, kind of like the Jesus seminar in the '90s um, he, you know he this this guy wanted to find wanted, he wanted a kind of uh, Bible as literature approach, but also the historical and scientific evidence for it, you know, which is what I wanted, yes, absolutely uh, and and those that is there is worthy study down those paths don't get me wrong, whether you're a believer or not, but it's not for everyone. <laughs> to do that Um, I told him that his faith will likely go if he's already losing it it's probably going to go into hibernation or die if that's the approach he's taking because he's pretty much already decided he's already decided like um, I I don't believe this so I'm going to go find more information that fortifies my disbelief so and what he wanted was a total confirmation for his faith just like Thomas the Apostle And the entire prospect of having and keeping faith rests on the idea that you will never have that certainty. That's, that's why it's called faith. And that's the funny thing. It's the great contradiction of faith and what makes people so crazy to those who don't have like this gift. Uh, Once you accept and adopt the mysteries of faith or the grace of God gives you the gift of faith, then that leap is taken and people will defend and guard that faith with their lives. Literally, literally. So this is why the faith will seem so dense and dumb to non-believers, or it seems like fanaticism, you know, or it seems like um, you won't, if somebody tells you uh, two plus two equals four and you've, no, I've decided it's two plus two equals five. And they'll say that you're wrong and you get into these arguments because arguing with um, the faith requires this leap. Um, You do leave logic. You leave things behind, um, (laughs) G.K. <laughs> Chesterton is probably the best writer about why this uh, is a, why this happens, how it works, and there's a book called Orthodoxy and another one called The Everlasting Man. So G.K. Chesterton is kind of like uh, the most quotable writer. Um, and anyway, I just recommend reading some of his stuff if you're if you struggle with that leap and how do you get there? How do you make it, especially in the face of strange things or violence or the problem of pain? The problem of pain is like. Um, Okay. So, but anyway, for myself now having come back or returned, I I do understand why these ostriches act so obtuse in defense of their faith. Like they do stick their head in the sand. I can't hear you. It's like they're plugging their ears. They stick their head in the earth um, and they're just ignoring you. You might be telling them, um, it'd be like if, what, what the non-believer feels like is you're telling them your bank account is empty and they're saying, I don't believe you. I still have checks. I can write checks. Um, you know, that, that doesn't mean you have money, but that's what it looks like to the non-believer. So not everyone, here's the thing, not everyone who believes has the time or ability to do deep readings, but they know that the faith is real and that the book contains the truth. And even if they can't understand everything, they have this total trust and will not allow anyone, especially someone who's coming with the aim of destroying their faith, they won't even allow the words of doubt to enter their ears. I know that sounds crazy, but most of the reborn believers have already been down the road of doubt that the unbeliever is on. That's the thing. They've already been there. They've already taken that road. So, they know where you've been and they know where it ends. And that's why no argument or persuasion will trick them into falling again because literally they see you as the one that's going to take it away or um, you're like the tempter. And this is the interesting thing of life is that we do act as like the tempters for one another. And um, of course, people of faith want to bring you over and the doubter wants to bring you over to their side. To, you know, we're both going to shine a light on each other. And I got the truth. well, but the thing is, if you do have returned, you, you do not want to fall into sin again. You don't want to go without God's grace, um, and they will not doubt God again, really, no matter what. And that's actually, that's pretty much what Jesus tells us to do, is um, you, you must persevere, persevere to the end. It's by your endurance you will gain your soul. So it's not like, oh, here's one difficulty. Yep, you're right, I'm out. No, and... Um, uh, who's the uh, author said there's a famous line of 10,000 difficulties make not one doubt. And it's a great line. I wish I could remember. And I, um, Anyway, 10,000 difficulties make not one doubt is kind of the answer for this um, someone who is a non-believer is thinking people are just sticking their heads in the sand. But um, the person who said that was actually one of the um, smartest ca- uh, Catholics. So he was a con- convert from Anglicanism. And, um, I I can't think of his name anyway. Um, so this seemed crazy to me, like this, this whole ostrich or 10,000 difficulties makes not one doubt. I never understood it until after I returned to believing and started reading a book that where I felt it was undermining my trust in God, it was undermining my belief. So I stopped reading the book immediately, uh, having this feeling of like something being taken. it It was like this this old feeling of like that middle school doubt. And I only returned and finished this book later once I felt able to do it because, um, it was like a, it, w- it was just a book that was kind of poking at, um, faith, you know, and trust in God. So, um, I actually recall feeling something like urging me to stop reading the book. Okay. Now things and I'm crazy with, if they haven't already, but then I knew I had crossed like the leap um, into the land of the ostriches because I set the book down. Um, and since that experience, I actually recognize much better when this like need to pray is near, or when it's coming to me, um, I need to do it, or when it must be done. And I didn't realize it at the time, but this is one of these signals that the saints refer to when they talk about the idea of spiritual combat. And spiritual combat might be a term you've never heard of, but there's a lot of uh, saints and who talk about it. It sounds crazy. But perhaps you know about this combat already, and I'll tell you what this combat feels like. Um you may have let me let me put it to you this way. Uh, if you have tried to quit doing something that you would like to remove from your life only to find that you cannot do it. So you justify it as like a cost of life or just something you have to deal with. Um, and you think maybe to yourself, like everyone must have a vice or two. you know, we don't all we don't want to be Puritans. Um, after all, no one is perfect, right? You kind of talk yourself through that. Well, the truth is that the devil never bothers you while you are carrying out his will, and he'll only aggravate you really terribly once you try to stop. So for me, this has a real-life illustration um, in tobacco usage and addiction. Uh, you know, I've talked about drinking a lot on this show, but um, as I, I could not stop with my own willpower and in fact, tobacco, I, I realized was way ahead of, um, Tesla and General Motors on inventing the self-driving car. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Well, whenever I had decided to quit using tobacco, I would have this built up full resolve in my mind In my, like, I felt like I was ready to stop. And I would even be telling myself in the car that I would not drive to a gas station to buy any tobacco. But to my surprise, Soon I would be standing in the line paying for tobacco products of one form or another. It's like my car had just driven itself to the store. Even as I was saying, I'm not going to do this. I remember saying, I'm not going to do it walking into the store. These almost felt like out of body experiences, except I was clearly turning the wheel and signaling to turn into the gas station or grocery store. And no matter how firmly I'd resolved to quit this thing, I could not. And no matter how full dedicated, fully dedicated to stopping uh, the practice I proclaim myself to be, like the addiction took over. So in the end, the only way I managed to stop using tobacco was the same method I learned and applied to stopping drinking, which was through prayer. So asking daily for strength and direction from a higher power is how um, it happened. It started that way and it works and it still works. and. My car no longer drives itself, so I lost that feature on the car, but I didn't never wanted that feature, the self-driving car to go get tobacco. It's like you just get in and it drives to the store and pretty soon you got it. Um, this power to change through prayer made no sense to me. Um, I didn't understand how it worked. Um, nothing made sense about it. I mean, after all of my extended efforts and books and nicotine gum and pills and therapies and none of that worked, none of it worked. The one thing I never thought would work, not only worked for one type of thing like this, but worked for various types of vice. Um, and even the vices of like wanting things that I really didn't need. Um, you can just like, you go into prayer and, and things change. I'm just, just telling you from experience here. But anyway, if this experience happens and you you become, you're be- willing to believe in the higher power you can make that leap from higher power to believing in, like, the entire apostles' creed, and then you're in trouble. You're in trouble because you can never go back, and nor would you ever want to go back, and nor will anything, come hell or high water, you pray, separate you again from the loving God who came looking for you and reached out and scooped you up. It's like that the, par- the parable of the 99 sheep, and there's one lost, and God goes and looks for the one sheep. You feel like the one sheep. Um, you were like falling down a cliff and you're laying there and somehow he came and scooped you off the cliff and gave brought you back and it's like Wow, thank you for doing that. I don't want that to ever happen again. So That's a long story to say. That's why believers may not read as deeply as the educated doubters do Um, They those those ostriches like myself now although I like to read deep so um, but they never want to lose the gift of faith again so even if, and here's my, like the boiling goat, I have an example of the violence for you. Um, Even if Samson slaughtered 1000 Philistines with a donkey's jawbone, and then acted like a total jerk after that, um, we're still going to look for the reason of why that's in there. Um, (laughs) So let's talk about this story a little bit. Um, You know, but here's the thing, once you start asking for like the Holy Spirit to help you read the book. And you read the book seeking faith, thinking, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I have to repeat this often. Uh, faith is a gift. You, you ask for it. You ask for it. It's like we're always... It's like uh, Oliver Twist. Can I have some more porridge, please, God? And, you, you know, he sends it like the Holy Spirit, like, comes to you. And those who don't have faith literally cannot read it like this encounter with God of what, you're, what you see it as. And the words, those three words, you read it as an encounter with God, not as like a textbook. So this is, um, and I'm not trying to irritate or mock either side of this question, Um, it's just the fact that the gift of faith changes your entire approach to how you read the word of God. And if you are coming in to the reading to find doubt or fortify your doubt, you will find more reasons to doubt. There's just no question about it. But if you come in reading to boost your faith, you will boost your faith. And it's like the saying, um, whether you think you can or you or you can't, you're right. So, you know, I use that as like a motivational quote sometimes. Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. It's exactly how you approach um, reading the Bible. If you come in with doubt, you'll doubt. If you come in with faith, you'll faith. That's not really a verb, but you know what I mean. Um, various anti-Christian websites have done all the work of extracting the most cruel and unusual scenes of the Old Testament so that you don't have to do any work to scrounge it out. You'll, it's available. If you Google like violent in Old Testament scenes, you'll find like list mania kind of stuff of people who said, uh, well, here's this time where this happened. And, and another time where this like, you know, Abraham is going to kill his own son. And it's like, well, yeah, that's because cha- their culture is being set apart from the surrounding cultures. But you know, you're you not going to talk about that. Um, it's actually the other cultures that kill their children. So, but anyway, um, the lists are posted online for even the most casual doubters, from middle schooler to like full blown Thomas Paine, all the way to like full atheist Christopher Hitchens kind of thing, so that um you can confirm their suspicions that yes, yes, the Old Testament violence is there. no one's doubting that, no one's saying it's not, you can't hide it. uh It's been around for way too long with way too many uh, church fathers writing on it, with way too many um i mean everyone writes on old testament it's fascinating to read because it's so old and ancient and you we we have a hard time seeing what the religious truth is or the moral story or how it relates to jesus so if you're looking for the bad god who tortured job um on like a dare from the devil you know the whole book of job is him losing everything and um, losing his health, losing his family, losing his fortune. And it's like this bet. It's like uh, trading places with Eddie Murphy, but um, it's poor Job. Um, or you read the book of Judges who slayed the enemies of Israel. Um, it's all there. It's all there. So if you want to like um, decide that God was an invention propped up to keep us in line, then you can pat yourself on the back for locating those cherries you wanted to pick to support that just through Google. But you're not really going to get into a deeper reading. Um, there are definitely, um, non-believers who do deep readings that, that are come up with some very interesting stuff. And, and even with that, if you go to read it with the eyes of faith, you, you probably have your faith strengthened. If you go with the eyes of doubt, you will, it will, it'll, uh, collapse like a house of cards. So, um, so really what we fail to realize is that the stories may tell of a violent event to make a point. And I often think that is the whole point. It's to show us the error of the ways. So St. Augustine, um, who seems like he was sent from the future to help us all learn to read, um, said, he said, this is a Latin phrase, narata la, non laudata. <laughs> and I I can't say Latin at all. Um, that's why if I'm a vampire, I'll go take Latin, but I'm, I'm not going to have time probably in my life. Uh, maybe I will, who knows, but what this means, narata non laudata, it means it is narrated, not praised. It is narrated, not praised. And I got this from the Navarre Bible, which is um, a Bible produced. Uh, I, I think it's great. There's huge commentaries on every section. And this was saying, St. Augustine was um, pointing this out that the fact that a story is in the book of judges, um, it doesn't mean it's being praised or, or setting out as being exemplary behavior. So, an account of an event in the Bible is not automatically a celebration of that event. The presence of a story does not make it a make it good just by its membership in the Bible. It's like um, it's it's kind of like people saying all cops are bad um, when or, or or vice versa, where we used to say all cops are good. Now it's like we were living in the upside down world. Now we're we flipped all cops are good to all cops are bad, and we know that neither one of those is true, um, but. It's what we're, what people do is they look in the Bible and say, well, if it's in the Bible, it must be, it's supposed to be an example of what we're supposed to do. But those stories are in there. They're not praised. They're told. It's just like um, Achilles or Odysseus in the Greek stories are, they often do things that are bad. Like Odysseus, uh, I think both, both of them try to get out of the war. You know, they're like um, draft dodgers or something. And um, they, you know, Achilles won't fight in the war he's kind of whiny. Odysseus is always lying and finding, trying to make his way through the world. And of course, that's why we love him because he's a sneaky, slippery guy. And he, he's very um, adept at fitting into the world, you know, but, um, God's judgment is not always explicitly stated in these stories. So like we must read it for the religious truth of the book, um, or the scene or the sentence. Sometimes it's the whole book. And then there's the overarching story of the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to the apocalypse, the Revelation. So you have to, it's not just this simple reading where you pluck out this thing. Like I said, you they pluck out this lizard out of a bag and hold it up wriggling. I got it, I got it right here. No, there's more, there's more to the story of like, why is the lizard in the bag? And why is, why are we doing this at all? Um, and okay, I won't go. It's kind of like the boiling goat though. Why is that in there? What's happening? Um, it's difficult to do this, though, because it's not easy reading, and I think that's why the readers of the scrolls, like uh, only only the priests in Israel would read the scrolls, uh, because they were the only ones who could really understand it, like, and then they would explain it to the people, so we still have that, you go to church, to we read these stories, someone helps us explain it, in Catholic Church we have the homily, um, like uh, I, I listen to other sometimes um, Protestant preachers because they can just go off for like 45 minutes on something and they're really good speakers and they can just dive into these things and explain what we don't understand. So um, it's difficult to do that for the average reader by yourself. And that's why like Bible study groups are nice because you can do it together. Say, I don't get what's going on. You can just say it like, I, what the heck is going on? I mean, that's why people read literature books um, together. Uh, I remember there was a person who would read James Joyce's *Odysseus* or *Ulysses*—sorry—in um, every year, and he would get people together, and they'd all read *Ulysses* because a lot of people don't know what the heck is going on in *Ulysses*. Um, that book is a parallel to the Greek epic of *The Odyssey*, um, but it's in like um, you know Ireland, and and so it's it's this relation. But there's a lot more going on, and a lot of people consider it the greatest book of all time. I have never finished it, so I need to take another stab at it. You know, when I'm in my retirement home someday or, or whatever. But, um, so it's hard to read these things, just like any literature is hard to read. And, um, that's why fables and things are great because you can understand them on that basic level. And in the higher level, when you get older, you hear them again and you're like, Oh, I, I get it. There's something more to the story than what I thought. Um, but it's worth the effort for those that do take the time if you can find time to do it. So, I mean, it's focused on the book of Judges because it's so littered with violence and morally confusing events. Like this is after um, Exodus, you know, they've been living um, for a while and the judges are kind of these military leaders that come along. And it's just this like warlord kind of time that um, there's a lot of chaos, but then somebody kind of gets control. Uh, So there's a lot of, like I said, violence, morally confusing stuff. Uh, Any reader who was looking for like direct practical life guidance would probably end up in jail if you just took like something straight out of certain parts of Judges and went and did that thinking, well, the Lord said this was okay (laughs) for the Bible tells me so. Um, There's, you gotta, there's, you gotta read it in the four ways we read the Bible, you know, the literal, the allegorical, the moral and how it relates to Jesus in the long run in the big picture. So many of the characters and we'll take Samson and Judges because you know, he's jacked, he's ripped, he's got all this strength, but he's not so much a model to imitate as a way of life, uh, really to be avoided in, in parts of his story, certainly. And the one I'm going to take here is, he, he takes a donkey's jawbone and he slaughters the Philistines, a thousand of them, and then he brags about it. And then after that, he goes even further and demands that God give him a drink, like that God like springs a well right in front of him. So, and it's this like, it's very uh, rude, like um, imperative sentence to God. Um, like, hey, I just did all this work for you. Where's my where's my protein shake, you know, and that so it's not advice on how to behave. Samson's gift of strength. Um, it, this is actually really important. His, his gift of strength and power is it becomes his curse. And so when you when you read it like this, you know, not just the because you'll you'll find in the in these online lists like Samson slaughtering people, holding up the job loan, um, which is like an Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of thing, like yeah, I killed them all with this bone, you know, um, and it's. But what what is interesting about it is, is, it's his strength that becomes his cross, and so this is the funny thing of these gifts and crosses. Um, he there's this religious truth hiding amid the jawbone story. If you read the rest of Samson uh, of that part of the Judges, because he's actually purified by his vice or strength or what, what defines him the most purifies him and he ends up dying because of it. His strength becomes his weakness um, and this is exactly how sin works. It's exactly how sin works. Like um, if you want to talk about alcoholism or, or um, like pornography use or whatever, the thing you really love to do is how you're going you're gonna to be purified in the end. You, you don't know it maybe um, unless you've been through it, but that's what's going to get you. And, uh, that's the same story with my, my, um, story of the woman with her bananas, where she's so obsessed with youth that it like destroys her and makes her all alone in the end. So that's what we're trying to do with the story. It's like Natalie Portman in the black Swan, the obsession with the rage to master ballet kills her in the end. Um, it's Mickey Rourke and the wrestler where he's, um, he's, he wants this glory. He lives this really crazy life and it's like supposed to be purifying him, but he's never purified. He just goes out right to the end. Just like my woman with her, but the curse of the bananas kind of thing. And, uh, you know, same with Sean Penn in that movie called U-turn where he's living this life of drugs and alcohol and chasing, um, see like sex, whatever. And he, uh, ends up being devoured in the end by in his same convertible topless car because he lives this really, um, crazy lifestyle. So um, same with Samson, it's his strength and his his pride of his strength that ends up leading to his demise. So um, if you read it with the eyes of faith and you look for the knowledge of what sin does to a human being, it will tease out this religious truth. And a Christian reader should always be looking for how everything relates to the coming redemption of Jesus. that's that's like the main thing you should get from that. So, I get it that the violence, um, drives people away, but you have to read all of these stories in four ways and the literal way or the little snippet where you just pluck it out and read that one line doesn't quite get to the point. And you have to look for that allegorical way, the moral way, um, and really of how sin, uh, interacts with us and then how it relates to Jesus, the overarching story. So, As um, in the Word on Fire Bible, there's probably the greatest introduction to how to read the Bible I've ever discovered. And it was talking about these exact things. Um, You know, people who just go and open the Bible at the start and say, I'm going to read through it. You start reading through it and hardly anyone is going to get through Leviticus um, because it's so boring. And then you're going to come across lines about like boiling goats and be like, what the hell kind of book am I reading here? This is insane. Not realizing that it relates to the, the time they were in. Um, so you do need that historical, literal type of reading. But then you go allegorically, like, what are they saying about this? Um, there's, there's those four ways you talk about. So um, I would say if you're going to buy any Bible, the Word on Fire Gospels will will take a lot of those difficult sayings and expound on it in ways that will open your eyes to things you had no idea were there. Um, and there's other ones too. Like I like the Navarre Bible for like study Bible. It's amazing insights from, from many, many years, a long time ago of writings, early writings. Um, Cause we think of people in the first and second century and third as as not that smart, but then you go read like Saint Augustine or Gregory of Nyssa or um, yeah, um, Ignatius of Antioch, all these church fathers, they call them, they have so much insight and they were so much closer to when Jesus was alive and uh, they know this stuff. But St. Augustine is definitely, uh, like I said, he was sent from the future. He was must have been some kind of cyborg, robot, genius. And um, yeah, reading him is really powerful. But he also can, uh, he was very human because his confessions uh, goes through the exact things of a doubter today. Like if, if anyone who is struggling, uh, thinks that you're the first one to come across this, go read St. Augustine's Confessions. It will blow your mind. It did mine because it's like he's sitting there writing this in the fourth century and it feels like he could be in the cubicle next to you, write one person over and, and telling you the same thing. So, so just to sum up this part, um, the account of Samson in no way suggests his uh, behavior is admirable. In fact, when we read the Bible in the light of Christ, we can see that all of this jawbone-slinging behavior of Samson is exactly the opposite of how Jesus lives his life. So the message is practically like a flashing red light telling us, don't be like Samson. He's a violent, arrogant brute who lacks humility. Um, St. Augustine has also said that any reading of the Bible that pushes us away from faith, hope, and charity is almost certainly incorrect, since that is what Christ came to tell us while he simultaneously came to fulfill the prophecies and uphold the law of the Old Testament. All right, I'll see you next time on part five.